1: It's time for a political breakfast. Thank you so much for listening and being here today. I'm Lisa Ram, political strategist Theron Johnson and Brian Robinson are also here. It's September and it's uh, almost fall, y'all. What do you think about that? How, how are you today?
0: Doing great. And it's also football season. So go dogs! It's football
1: season. <laughs> I know that all too well. Yes, it is. And It's also getting closer to the time where uh, legislators are tasked with redrawing district lines in a special session. And here to talk with us about that today is our guest, Dr. Charles Bullock. He holds the Richard B. Russell Chair in Political Science at UGA and, and other great honors. We are so happy to have you here and pleased to have you with us today.
2: I've been a longtime fan and follower, so I'm I'm honored to be on your program.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Feel at home. You feel at home. Well, you sit back at the breakfast table, and uh, we're going to chat a little bit about redistricting. As you know, Georgia legislators approved redistricting guidelines uh, a few days ago that are nearly identical to those past 10 years ago. Democrats are already crying foul, even before the special session has taken place. I was able to spend some time with representatives uh, Roger Bruce and Billy Mitchell, and they are just resigned to the fact that this is going to end up in court. With Republicans in charge of the process and and what you've known and and what you see so far, is it your opinion that that will truly be the end
2: result here? That's that's just the way the game is played now. Uh, There is the legislative session and... uh, invariably uh, in a situation like we have in Georgia, which is sometimes referred to as a trifecta, and by that means one party, in this case Republicans, control all the levers. They control the House, control the Senate and the governorship. And under that kind of situation, the minority party is largely consigned to the role of being observers. And so, yeah, once you lose or if you lose at the legislative stage, immediately you go to court. And, um, Georgia has long experience of having litigated redistricting plans in the past, and it would be amazing if we didn't see that happen again in 2021, 20, 2022.
1: Census found that the white population in Georgia dropped 2%. Do you think Republicans might make a conscious effort to to turn this into an opportunity to, to increase, recruit non-white voters?
2: I don't know whether they will do that. Uh, this is something which, um, you know, It's been on the table for them for years, uh, needing to to broaden their base, Uh, and so far, they've not taken any steps in that direction. Now, the problem for them right now is that they don't have strong support among any of the minority groups. Indeed, the only ethnic group in Georgia that votes consistently Republican is whites. So whether they would think about, well, this might be the time to try to go out and appeal for, say, Hispanic voters— uh, and try to draw an Hispanic district somewhere and take credit for that. I guess it's possible, but they really haven't laid the predicate for that.
1: Brian, what are your thoughts here? You, you've spent some time in, in recent weeks really uh, delving into this. Uh, you've got an article uh, this week in Georgia Trend uh, that uh, I think you and uh, Dr. Bullock collaborated on. Well, I got his advice. I got his uh, advice, got his advice, advice on it. You got his yeah. advice. First, you did the hard. Okay. Yeah, I wrote yeah. it.
0: He's, at, at, I, I was sitting in the first draft. And he was like, yeah, Brian, that's not right. <laughs> and so I, I had to go and, and re- re- rewrite the whole damn thing. Yeah. Right. But but he saved me from embarrassment. Um, so, and also I want, I want to point out, uh, Dr. Bullock was my professor uh, at the University of Georgia for numerous classes. And in fact, he is the first person to ever put me on air. The uh, Barbara Dooley, Vince Dooley's wife, had a show in Athens and asked right. him for advice on students to have on to talk politics. And he said, me. And so that was the first time, and that would uh You know, I say close to thirty. So good student,
1: bad student, Dr. Bullock. Uh, you can tell us. He was an excellent student. Yeah,
2: right.
3: Uh- <laughs> Dr. Bullock, I think you said it about all your students.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I bad ones. <laughs> I wanted to ask of all of your
0: students. You took you four times in a, in in the mid '90s. Who was your favorite? But I, I don't know. I didn't. But you, you don't have yes. to answer. You don't have to answer. <laughs> uh here's my question on redistricting because i think this is really uh super pertinent because there are these federal laws that are involved that do handcuff the general assembly to some degree even though there's no longer the section five of the voting rights act which allows the department of justice to sign off but down in southwest georgia we got a black democrat member uh samford bishop who has been there for more than two decades uh I think probably has the most seniority in the de- in the delegation now. But his district in that part of the state hasn't grown fast enough and may have even lost population. So he's going to have to pick up a lot of land, a lot of geography in that second congressional district. And when you start building out from southwest Georgia, you're going to be running into some Republican areas. And he's never had like a strongly Democrat district. This is an area where, where the Republicans without any rules involved, could pick him off, could draw it to be a Republican district. Can they do that legally, Dr. Bullock? Can they draw a district because they have no other choice or because it makes sense uh, to to draw a district that removes a black Democrat member of Congress?
2: Clearly they could do that. Uh, would they be challenged legally? Yeah, they would. And the challenge would have to be filed under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and that... Uh, the question kind of associated with it is, do minorities have an equal chance to elect their candidate of choice, equal to what whites' chances are? Uh, you know, to, to purposely go and draw a district that they think that they could defeat him in would really be kind of you know, kicking over a hornet's nest, because you know it's going to cause all kinds of problems. But just the logistics, you're right, I mean, that district is underpopulated, it has to expand somewhere. Uh It may be, and my guess is that no matter how you draw it, the black concentration, proportion black, is going to drop in that district. Now, for most of his tenure, he is one in a district which has not been majority black, at least among uh, uh, voters. The Republicans 10 years ago did boost that district, so it became majority black in registration. It probably won't be, but he is one in similar kinds of district. Now, where he's going to face a problem would be that the people who get brought into his district, he won't have a relationship with them. Uh, so it'll be, in essence, in that part of the district are running for an open seat. He'll have to work much more diligently in introducing himself to win over those voters.
3: Dr. Bullock, I want to jump in here, and it's always good to be on with you. And like Brian, I want to thank you for allowing me to come and speak to your uh, class a few times. While I did not have the opportunity to have you as a professor, um, you are, I think, the best political scientist uh, in the world, uh, often quoted
0: in the world. No, Wait, I'm, I'm, that's I'm not really right. <laughs> well. The reason
3: I said it is because you know Brian, he calls balls and strikes. I mean, you can't label Doctor Bullet as a Democratic favorite, and you know, Lord knows, he definitely for years have been keeping the Republicans honest. So I really, you know, mean that. And growing up in Athens and reading your columns as a young kid, uh, it's just remarkable that we're on a podcast together today. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier uh, about the Republicans' inability to broaden their electric, particularly, you know, if these districts are redrawn, and let me be very clear, if Democrats were in control, we would follow the law and do our best to try to collaborate with Republicans, but we would draw districts that favor our incumbent state legislators, and if there's some ability to grow, uh, we would find those opportunities. So my question to you is this. As Lisa pointed out, we know that um, Georgia is, I believe, a majority-minority state, even though we in the country and in the world have always, minorities have been the majority, when we've seen a significant increase in the 29-county MSA. How do Republicans, with the growth in the metro area, successfully try to, one, draw out people of color in Districts 6 and 7, which Congresswoman McBath and Congresswoman where currently represent. And then the second part to that question is, what can the Republicans do through their actions and through voting, not through rhetoric, not throwing candidates out there who are black men, but what can they do better to make sure that minority voters feel like they back their rhetoric up with actual legislative and policy action?
2: Yeah, we're going to do uh, what Republicans can do when they come to drawing the maps You know, it's easier when you're talking about congressional districts to uh, take advantage of your position because, you know, they are so big. Now, in state House districts, you know, you've got things that are locked in because those are fairly small. But what probably my guess is what will happen is that elements of the sixth and seventh districts, those two districts that were won by Democrats, one in 2018, the other in 2020, will be combined. And the Republicans will take one of those districts and say, yeah, we're going to make sure this is a very solidly Democratic district. And so they will take Democrats out of one, put it in the other one, and it'll become a district which is not competitive at all. They may then swap some people out of this district that they've made much more Democratic, take the Republicans out of it, and add it to the other district and make it much more Republican. Indeed, we saw the legislature do that down in South Georgia, to go back to Brian's question, 10 years ago, when they made a swap between Sanford Bishop's district and made it more Democratic by taking Democrats out of uh, Scott's district, Austin Scott's district and doing a swap, giving him more Republicans out of uh, Sanford Bishop's district. So I think we might well see that so that they can do that. Now, as to your second question, part of your question, what can Republicans do to broaden their base, which, again, was with you, you keep thinking that uh, the demographic time bomb keeps ticking that Republicans sooner or later are going to say, oh my gosh, what, what's happening to us? Um, yeah. There are many dimensions. Uh, Latino work, voters are, are fairly conservative on a number of social issues. Uh, and so I would think that might be where Republicans would want up try to make a play but to do that, they've got to quit passing policies which are perceived as being hostile to, to immigrants. Things such as, you know, not allowing, uh, you know, uh, dreamers to to come to to major universities in the state and qualify for hope, making it difficult to get a driver's license. These kinds of things. So I think if Republicans make some changes in that, I think they have some real prospects of making appeals to to. Uh, hispanics and maybe even to some uh, entrepreneurs say in the asian community and again they might be able to make headway there but they and I, and I, and the kind of consultants i talk to like brian yeah they're well aware of this i mean you know they, they know that these numbers are changing but the problem seems to be that it, that message isn't getting through to the the policymakers to the decision makers within the legislature who continue to play for for the win today rather than thinking about what's it going to do to their party two, five, ten years down the road.
1: You know, I had a question about rural Georgia. Will it get lost in the process uh, now that Georgia is uh, seemingly increasing its urban footprint? Or will uh, rural politics continue to dominate internet healthcare, and business and, and, and those issues?
2: Well, those rural districts, particularly like in southwest Georgia, they're going to get a lot bigger geographically because mm-hmm. they don't have people. And so what we're also going to see is some state legislators, maybe even a state senator or two, are going to in essence, lose their seat. They can certainly, they can run, but they may have to run against another legislator. Maybe even have to run now against another member of their own party because once you get outside of urban Georgia, you know, this is a very, very red state. And so if you lose some uh, rural districts in South Georgia, you're probably are pairing Republican against Republican instead of Republican against Democrat. And so, you know, re- rural Georgia is going to have fewer seats in the legislature. If we go back way back, like 60 years ago, uh, we were about evenly divided north and south of the NAT line. And you can give you know, a manifestation of how this has changed is you look at the numbers of state Senate districts. They begin with number one in Savannah and kind of work their way around and end up with the 50s up along the Tennessee line. Well, when you see a low number district like five or nine that's in metro Atlanta, you know at one point that was a South Georgia district that has been lost and been moved. And that's going to continue. There'll be some more of that. So South Georgia becomes less and less powerful because it simply doesn't have, have the votes in a, an election for governor or senator and doesn't have the legislators to uh, promote its concerns in the General Assembly.
0: That's right. You know, and down in southeast Georgia, south central Georgia, Tyler Harper's district, uh, State Senator Tyler Harper, he is running for ag commissioner this year, and it's a huge district geographically. But with there being no incumbent, I think that that district is going to get collapsed and will will be an obvious choice to get rid of since there's going to be a lot of those having to grow down there in South Georgia. Let me ask you, since you're very experienced in drawing maps as well and and understanding how you uh, shift shapes to get the right numbers. When you're looking at six and seven, so, of course, seven for our listeners is part of Gwinnett and then a part of South Forsyth had been a Republican district. Bordeaux picked it up as pro Democrats last time. Sixth district, which is North DeKalb, North Fulton, East Cobb, represented by Democrat Lucy McBeth. you got to know, Republicans are going to try to pick off one of those. They're going to try to draw it in a way to bring a Republican member to one of those two. I think smart Republicans know there's no pathway to doing both. I mean, there was some chatter about that. I think it's insane. There's too many Democrats you got to put somewhere. Which one of those districts is going to be easier to turn into a Republican district? And how would you do it?
2: Yeah, you know, what you do uh, would be to run one of them further, further north. And once you start going north, now you're picking up uh, Republicans, you know, whether you go further into Forsyth, as uh, District 7 does, or you could even go into Hall County. Now, you know, 10 years ago, Hall was sacrosanct because Governor Dio wanted to have a Gainesville-based district. Well, he's not there now. So you could easily. I seem to you recall that. that.
0: I, seem to- <laughs> I may have been a part of those conversations.
2: <laughs> yeah, we were. But you can push up into the hall, which is, you know, a, a very, very red uh, district. And also another thing which gives you some latitude, you mentioned with regard to the state Senate, with regard to the congressional districts, Jody Heiss is not running for re-election. So you can move into North Georgia uh, with one of those districts, force uh, the, the ninth district uh, to go further south, which pushed it down, say, further into Clark County, where it partially, partially comes already, is it looks for people. But yeah, once you get out beyond that kind of penumbra around Atlanta, which is becoming increasingly Democratic, you hit solid Republican areas. Now, the trick for Republican mapmakers is try to figure out not just what that looks like today, but they're going to try to draw districts that will work for them through the next 10 years. So they're going to be trying to figure how much further is is Georgia going to be booing, Democrats moving Further out from the city, you know, for example, Forsyth County. Yeah, it is. It is changing. Uh, you know, it gave uh, a smaller margin to Donald Trump in twenty twenty than in twenty sixteen. And yeah, we think of it as being red, red, red. Yeah, it's pretty red, but it's changing, and so even that you you've got to factor in.
0: Absolutely, they could also go up into Cherokee too.
2: Ch- well, you could. Yeah, and Cherokee is another. Yeah, you so, could so come push a- anywhere. Th- pushing out beyond that that area right now. Yeah. yeah, so
0: circling back to it, which one do you think is easier to make into a Republican district, six or seven?
2: Uh, given the, the makeup right now, maybe the sixth is because there is a much larger minority population in seven. That's right. And so you could just kind of shift, uh, say, that North Cab chunk over into into the seventh district. Um, and then you'd force the sixth district to go f- go north, go into Cherokee County, which you could easily do by just crossing out of Fulton right into that.
1: Dr. Bullock, 11 public hearings and and the process seems to be back to square one. Voters at these hearings said they wanted transparency and it doesn't seem that it's going to happen to their satisfaction at this point. What in this process, if anything, raises a red flag with you?
2: You Yeah, I think my voters probably met. I I went to one of the the hearings that was here in town and listened to some of the other ones is I think maybe some of them had this notion that the whole legislature or whole chamber would gather together and start drawing maps. Well, that didn't always happen. I mean, instead, there'll be you know, some technically skilled folks who will draw maps, which will then be unveiled and presented uh, to the legislature. And indeed, uh, there'll be some some members of the Republican Party who may be surprised at what's happening to their districts also. while well, the Democrats will be even more surprised. Um so what, what to look for, well, one of the often giveaways to something which people would point to and say, well, that is a is if they see a really strange district, you know, one which doesn't seem to follow any kind of existing political boundaries. One of the things which the legislature says it's going to try to do is to honor, to the extent that it can, county boundaries and city boundaries. Now, of course, the trade-off against that is we have to zero out population differences entirely for congressional districts and pretty closely for state legislative districts. So that means you're going to have to to break some of those. But if you see some really weird districts, and if you want to know what those are, go back and look at the plans that were done 20 years ago, and those are the weirdest ones you'll ever see. You start seeing things like that, and you figure, yeah, they're doing something here to to disadvantage or advantage someone.
3: Dr. Bullock, uh, you mentioned 20 years ago. And I know I don't look that old and sound that old, but that's really where I cut my teeth into campaigning. I remember what you just explained. There was a multi-member district. You remember those 20 years ago where Alicia Thomas at the time was a 22-year-old graduate from Spelman College and ran in one of those multi-member districts and became the first African-American and the youngest person from Cobb County to be elected to the state legislature. So I, I want to thank Roy Barnes and all his crew and... And others who drew some good maps uh to get good people like <laughs> yeah. Um
0: Yeah. I guess talk about beauty big in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, <laughs> and, you
3: know, for our listeners, you know, again, I've been at this for over 20 years. Um, Dr. Bullock, really quickly, I want to follow up on Lisa's point. Don't you think the Republicans run the risk of mishandling this reapportionment redistricting process at a time when we know that they're are the party of one of the most unpopular president in our history. Um, They had state senators and state representatives spreading a lie about the election being stolen. Joe Biden won this state three times. So if they mishandled this redistricting process at a time when they have lost, disaffected, college-educated, suburban white women, when they have a trust issue with African Americans and Latino voters and Asian voters, and also at a time where... Honestly, the middle is how the Democrats really won, getting a lot of those moderate Democrats to come back to the party. And also, Dr. Bullock, you and I have talked about this, but getting some of these independent white men to vote for Democrats this last Mm -hmm. time around. So, again, my question is, don't they run a risk of losing those voters again in these midterms if they mishandle and give the appearance of a non-transparent process? In a process of redistricting that is not as fa- That's, that's not fair.
2: Yeah. The, the transparency, I'm not sure that hurts them, but what could hurt them would be to get greedy, uh, and to, you know, certainly if they tried to say, expand their, their numbers in the state house and state Senate, then they're going to be drawing a number of very marginal districts, which could backfire against them. Uh, what I expect is going to happen, particularly in the State House, and my guess is the Democrats probably pick up some seats. The Republicans, again, thinking about what's going to happen over the next 10 years, may disappoint some of their current members and uh, simply tell them, look, you had a really close run in 2018 and 2020, and congratulations, you managed to hang on, but that district is changing. And so uh, we're going to kind of take our losses here at the front end and uh, sure, you can run a district, but it's going to be now a Democratic district because we're going to give that up. And instead, uh, I would think that they might, you know, again, I don't know what the number would be, but say, you know, try to defend, you know, 97, 98, something like that districts rather than 103 or something. But, so I think that uh, Democrats probably make some gains even though they don't get to draw the maps. And what we saw for for decades when Democrats were drawing maps is that every time Democrats drew maps, Republicans actually picked up seats in the state Senate. And clearly that was not the the goal of the Democrats in doing it. It was just the reality that you know, the population at that point was moving towards the Republican Party, just as now there's some movement back towards the Democratic Party. That's
0: right.
1: Brian, your last line in your article, I was perusing that Dr. Bullet advised you on right (laughs) you say republicans will celebrate and democrats will scream at the end of this process and then both will turn their attention to the most closely watched governors and u.s senate campaigns in the country races where no one gets to redraw the lines right what was the major takeaway from from this study that you did from me brian i'm asking you yeah what's what was the major takeaway
0: well you know one thing that i consulted with Dr. Bullock on is, you know, explain to me how this is different than 2001 when, the, you know, the Democrats were, uh, had the majority, they had 105 House seats back then. The Republicans have 105 House seats today. And mm-hmm. same situation, the other party, the minority party is making huge gains, perhaps moving toward a majority. And the the Democrats, even uh, with the gerrymander maps, had a hard time. Maintaining their majorities back then. Now, granted, the courts threw it out, so we can't really test that theory about how it would have gone over over that decade. But uh, one thing that Dr. Bullock and I talked about was Republicans will have an easier time keeping their majority in the state house and state senate, and they can do it. And like this is very important because those Barnes maps that Theron was just raving about—those some good maps Theron said—were were hideous maps, I and mean, they were they they didn't pass the optics test and you could look at them and go, this is gerrymandering, this is extreme, this is a power grab. Republicans, I think, my theory is, they can draw a map that maintains their majorities and passes the eye test. Uh, Dr. Bullock, tell us why Republicans are able to do that.
2: well, Democrats have a disadvantage. This is sometimes referred to as a natural gerrymander, and that is Democrats are concentrated in urban areas. And so, again, particularly if like you're drawing state house districts around 59, 60,000 people apiece, uh, you're going to have some of those districts that are just overwhelmingly Democratic. And a Democratic candidates going to win, you know, 80 percent, maybe not even have a Republican opponent. Uh, so term that's often used is these are wasted votes. I mean, if you were ideally drawing your maps, you'd like to draw it so your party is winning 55, 57, 60 percent of anything much more than that. Those votes don't help you. And so with the Democrats being so concentrated, yeah, there's a lot of districts that are going to win overwhelmingly, but it's not going to help them as they move out. Now, what, again, if Democrats were doing what they would probably do would be to draw what are called bacon strip districts. And so these would be districts that would begin in some of those heavily, heavily Democratic areas and extend out into Republican areas. Uh, and in that way, they could you know, get more seats for their votes. But re- Republicans drawing the maps, they're going to do that for the Democrats, and so they're going to kind of willingly say, "Yeah, we're going to give you, you know, dozens and dozens of seats here that you're going to win overwhelmingly, and we're never going to contest them." But we're then Republicans would say, "We're then going to win a whole lot of seats, you know, where we can get 55, 57, 60 percent of the vote." So Republicans are just, you know, more efficiently distributed right now than are than are Democrats.
1: All right. Well, a special session still a few weeks away, slated to take place the latter part of October, uh, early part of November. Uh, so, Dr. Bullock, maybe we'll have you back uh, to talk about it then. <laughs> Stick with us, though. We'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, a couple of names. Carolyn, uh, Representative Carolyn Bordeaux and Herschel Walker we will return in a moment. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news.
2: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
0: There's a big learning curve
2: with
1: welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at
2: meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: You're listening to Political Breakfast. I'm Lisa Ram. Before we get back to the conversation, I quickly want to tell you about our new podcast, The Brief from WABE. Each episode is 10 minutes long and delivers the latest news stories that affect your life that's the brief from wabe subscribe for free wherever you get your podcast our special guest today is dr charles bullock uh, from uga we've been talking about redistricting but uh, now let's switch gears a little bit and us Representative carolyn bordeaux um we're going to switch gears for a minute. U.S. Representative Carolyn Bordeaux making news, standing up to Nancy Pelosi. Any any thoughts from any of you on that? Dr. Bullet, we'll
0: let you go first as our honored guest here.
2: Yeah, well, uh, she won her seat by about 10,000 votes, so quite competitive. She's going to be running in a district that's going to be reconfigured somewhere, and it may be that yet yeah, becomes more Democratic, but certainly it's going to be a different-looking district. Uh, I guess since the, the passing of Ted Kennedy, the face that Republicans want to put on the Democratic Party more than anything else is probably Nancy Pelosi. So, if you're running in a marginal district as a Democrat, it helps you if you put in some distance between yourself and Nancy Pelosi. If you can say, Yeah, I stood up to her, I've voted against her on certain things. Also, by kind of staking out a position on this uh, $3.5 trillion piece of legislation, and saying that uh, you'd like to see uh, some cuts in that, that'll also play well with well, whatever her district looks like when she runs runs in it. Uh, another thing is that the moderates, uh, the small group of Democrats, uh, they have some actual real leverage. Now, there aren't a whole lot of them, but the Democratic margin in the House is so minuscule that you, know, <laughs> you get a group and drive around in a VW minibus, and you got enough people to control the house. You know, <laughs> if you say, you're going to vote against the Democrats on this, they got to listen to you and do what they're going to do. To kind of reel you back in.
1: Was that a smart move, though, to challenge uh, Nancy Pelosi? Yeah, I
0: mean, smart my word? thing, my question there for y'all to is: Is it a smart move to Lisa's point, if the district's going to become more democratic and more liberal in twenty
2: twenty two? Yeah, I don't know that uh, that. Uh, Representative Bordeaux right now is worrying about, you know, having to face down a a democratic challenge. I mean, clearly, I guess someone could run against her on the left, if indeed it does become more so. But keep in mind also that these districts are not going to be in place a whole long time before the the election. So there's not going to be that much time then for a person to mount a campaign against her. So I think that, you know, right now, uh, I think, I think I, I see see why she's doing it, and uh, I wouldn't criticize her for that because again, she has no idea what that district is going to look like.
0: Yeah, I think it's absolutely courageous to stand up and do this, and whether it's good politics or not, I don't understand the Democrats' in, ins and outs well enough to say. But it is courageous to do it, and she is a freshman member who's making national news, which is very rare for a House member to do. So I think it's it's worth discussing. There, I have seen that she is getting hit from the left at home uh Nabila Islam who ran against her in that primary in 2020 and who is a fill-in for Theron on this show whenever he's on one of his very fancy vacations in the islands uh (laughs) tropical climates she comes on and and I she's come after uh Carolyn Bordeaux for you know this for abandoning the party for stabbing the party in the back or whatever whatever it is so I wonder if Nabila our friend on the here on the show was sort of signaling that she may be interested in running for that seat. But I, as a fiscal conservative, greatly appreciate what Carolyn Bordeaux is doing. And you're not going to hear me praising many members of the Democratic delegation too often, but she is standing up for sanity here that we cannot afford what the Democrats are trying to do. So just from one Republican to her, thank you for what you're doing. I know that that does not help you politically for me to say that.
2: Well, Theron can talk to this because John Barrow, with whom Theron worked and I think I first met, uh, I think we first met when you were working on, on John's campaign that first time, and he you know, stood up to Nancy Pelosi also on things like uh, even uh, Obamacare. Uh, and so, yeah, <laughs> I see some similarities Without here. The
3: bullet, that's why I called you the best, because you have to remind Brian that we have that relationship dating back to 2004, you're right, and... I agree with everything that Dr. Bullock said, but I have to laugh at my good friend, Brian Robinson, who <laughs> likes to conveniently point out Democrats when it's conveniently uh, able for him to make his point with Nabila. Because I remember hearing some of the sparring sessions between you all. I'm sure, I'm sure you know, as we call her, <laughs> Billy would appreciate that that, that shout yeah. out. But it, it, it goes back, Lisa, to exactly what Dr. Bullock just talked about. Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux is trying to win in November and I think she knows that no matter what, there's going to be some changes in her district. And let's not forget, this is the same Carolyn Bordeaux, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, who work for the state and the budget office, right? And so if anyone kind of knows how to be fiscally conservative, it's Carolyn Bordeaux. You know, for a lot of times, we hear Republicans trying to labor her as this socialist, this left-wing sort of radical Democrat – And that's not really who she is. And so it's less about her standing up to Speaker Pelosi. It's more about what Dr. Bullock said, going to Washington and being an independent voice that's a representative representative of um, the people in her district. And then John Barrow is the perfect example, Dr. Bullock. And I'm so glad you brought him up because he also was a victim of constant redistricting. I mean, they redrew his district over what four or five times and he survived most of them, but it just got too had, Yeah, it got too he conservative. To from, he
0: had to move from Athens to so, Savannah, to, Savannah to, Augusta.
3: to Augusta. I mean, <laughs> and and so it was cruel. So I think also for our listeners, keep in mind that the number one targeted congressional district in the country for Republicans is the seat that belongs to Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux because they lost it by such a slim margin. And so while I do support what Speaker Pelosi is doing, I think the Democrats are going to put together a proposal that the American people are going to benefit from. But I think Speaker Pelosi and others in leadership on the Democratic side understand that these members have got to do what they got to do in order to be reelected because we got to do our best to keep the U.S. House um, to the Democrats.
0: And I'll also point that another uh, UGA Dr. Bullock student who worked with Theron Johnson on that Barrow race is our friend Ashley Jones, who is now the lead House lobbyist for Biden's White House. Uh, So that could be why she no longer responds to my text. I don't know if it's (laughs) a security protocol or if she just doesn't want to be associated with me anymore. But she has really done very well for herself. She's a great Georgian and a damn good dog. Absolutely.
3: And let's not forget, she worked previously before this new role with the Biden administration for Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So if anyone knows how to get things done, and she's unique because Dr. Bullock remembers, um, she was started off as the finance director, but went on to be campaign manager and then chief of staff. Uh, for John Barrow. And so she can bring a different sort of outlook to this whole process. But um, I, again, I think it's just a big shout out to, to John Barrow, who put so many of us on. I mean, there's so many people who used to work for him that are um, doing very well now. And so um, I'm sure he listens to this podcast and will probably be sending me a text uh, this weekend.
0: So John, I'm Christian to Walker, for- everyone of your students.
2: He was, not let's, he was say, not. let's talk about our newest Georgian uh, kind of uh, sort of Herschel Walker a building here uh, up there where the the Coke machines are. Oh uh, <laughs> so, no, I, I did not have the pleasure of having him in class. No.
1: What was your reaction to uh, him him announcing a run for, for U.S. Senate?
2: Oh, uh, he's he's getting into a new game, <laughs> and uh, and as as a very talented athlete, I suspect he realizes it's going to take a lot of training. To do well in this new game, uh, I mean, he's going to have to be prepared to have a position on a whole range of issues that, you know, in his life up until this point, he's probably never had to give a whole lot of thought to. So, um, it's it's going to be a challenge. Uh, and it was one of the other things I asked my class about this. So here I got you know eighty some odd uh, students who are you know, right around twenty years of age. So you know, they don't remember Herschel's glory days. they've probably seen you know clips of him running over that that uh, Tennessee uh linebacker but uh, you know they they really don't have any strong feelings one way or the other and um indeed, several. several and again, this is I guess it's a bad sample these are political science majors so not just average kind of u g a students but they were saying is uh you know, they say our generation is really interested in what kind of policy stands a person has and so Not so much, you know, kind of hero worshiping. So kind of put that aside and say, yeah, all right. So he was great for UGA, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, what are his positions on you know, the whole range of topics that are going to be he's going to be asked about over the next year, 14 months?
0: If he is asked, right. I mean, there's there could be the strategy of I'm Herschel Walker. You remember me. You love me. Let's not talk policy. I don't know that's gonna work, but <laughs> you know,
3: Dr. Bullock, I took yeah, some for- time and, and I won't mention the players' name names, but Brian knows I have good relationships with former UGA players. Um, you know, you think of some of the top names, these are folks that I hang out with. And I asked them the question, you know, as former players who play with Herschel or play UGA football, knowing that he is, I think, the most popular most, uh, res- you know, w- renowned, respected UGA football player, and that's a long list of, you know, people um, that I put him above, even they kind of are concerned about the transition from going being in this fabulous football player who went to the NFL, played for the AFL, who, who's made a lot of money. And I think, you know, people may say is a um, business owner who's done well for himself. Um, I don't know how the Republicans hide some of the glaring sort of possible negatives for him. And so to me and what I've said on this podcast out of build, and I'd like to get your sense on this, is let's just go right into it. Are white Republican voters going to vote for Herschel Walker when you have qualified white candidates in the race for the Republican primary? I just I have never seen that done before. And if Herschel is able to do it, I think it would be the first time ever in our, definitely in Georgia's history, that that's happened. But probably in U.S. history.
2: Well, I, there there is a, kind of a model of what might happen. This would be the election of Tim Scott over in South Carolina, so that would certainly be be a possible thing. Um,
0: but and, he was appointed yeah. first, though.
2: Yeah, yeah but he, he, well, he was, well, he was, yeah, but he he, he did win. Remember the congressional uh, election. That's right when he got nominated to go to Congress, and he defeated Strom son among others. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, the biggest factor, I think, and Brian can address this much better than I can, that uh, would propel Herschel potentially to a nomination would be that he is going to be Donald Trump's candidate. And, uh, you know, we, we see that, you know, if you're standing with Donald Trump at a Republican rally, you get uh, applauded. And even our governor can get booed uh, when appearing before Republicans because some Republicans perceive him as not being sufficiently pro-Trump. And certainly not that the governor has gone out to say, I don't like Donald Trump or anything like that. No, the governor's tried to maintain very good relationships, but again, going back to the election and all that. So that endorsement from Trump, I think, will will, will play a, a very significant role. But where Herschel, you know, as any kind of novice candidate, may and not even necessarily of an interview in just the course of making a statement, say something which uh, sounds maybe perfectly reasonable, but in a particular context, it's kind of, oh my gosh, why would he say that? And a more experienced candidate who is like a chess player and is thinking kind of three or four moves ahead about, well, if I say this, how is this gonna be con- interpreting mm-hmm. uh, I think that uh, he could easily stumble over something like that.
1: And where's the passion? Not seeing the passion either. Well true, yeah.
2: But, but
3: I will say this about Herschel and you know, again, I, I am a huge fan of the football player Herschel Walker. Um I've called myself out, you know, for being sort of just so giddy. My wife listens to this podcast, so if I don't say this, she'll call me out at home. But we walked into the national championship with Herschel Walker and I took a picture with him in the rain. I also <laughs> saw AJ Green. Shout out to AJ. <laughs> hope him hope he has a good season uh, with um the Cardinals. Herschel Walker during Donald Trump's unsuccessful bid to get reelected, talked about why he supported Donald Trump, right? And it was based on what the Trump family meant to him. He talked about how he would go visit them for Christmas. And he remember, he said he wasn't really this bad man, right? And, you know, Herschel kind of became a validator. It was unsuccessful, but he became a validator for Trump's um, race-baiting, sort of, at times, bigot behavior, Right. But I think what what Herschel now is going to say is, is that I'm a black man. I grew up in Johnson County, Georgia. I utilized my physical ability in football to go on to play in professional football. And since then, I'm a business owner and I have all these properties, you know, all around the country. And so I think he's going to say I am a Republican because of A, B, C, D and E. And I think in one of those letters, Brian, it's going to be an economic message to black men who are Democrats to say, hey, you know, what has the party really done for you lately? And I'm just warning Democrats that we've got to be prepared ahead of time to make sure that no that that's coming. We've got to have an answer for it.
0: Yeah, I think Herschel is going to go into this race in the general election next year, if he's the nominee, with the benefit of it being a midterm election with a Democrat in the White House. And Democrats are going to have to answer for the – debacle in Afghanistan, the border crisis, potentially inflation. There could be something that goes askew with the economy by then. They're going to be on defense. And in a 50-50 state, that should play well for the Republican candidate, no matter who he is. But my question for Dr. Bullock is what I have seen in polling is that the elected official who's doing the best statewide right now is Raphael Warnock. And I see it fairly consistently. He's uh, consistently polling, has a better fave-unfave than Brian Kemp, better one than even John Ossoff. It's interesting that voters make some differentiation there. I don't know what what that is based on. But how do you think that Herschel versus Warnock race, should that be the scenario, play out? Because the common theme that we're seeing, and I I saw Eric Erickson, for example, tweet this out last week, that – Herschel is going to be hard to beat in a primary, and he's going to be a weak candidate in the general. Is that your take on that? Is that what you think is the case? I'm not saying it's the case. I'm asking you.
2: Yeah, I think that probably is a fairly accurate assessment. Uh, because as you get into the general election, yeah, Donald Trump is certainly, you know, can get you there. Uh, being supporting him is almost probably essential as a Republican. But, you know, Trump cuts both ways. Uh, and so, yeah, being the Trump candidate is also going to mobilize some share of the electorate who's going to say, yeah, I'm I'm voting against this person simply because he's you know, associated with, with Donald Trump. And it's not going to be possible for Herschel to, to dissociate. And then um, I think you know I'm both Democratic and Republican consultants say that the Warnock campaign was the best one run of the four last year for the Senate. And I assume he's going to have the same advisors and have another, you know, campaign like that. Now, sure, he's going to have a record he's going to have to respond to, and votes that he's taken, he's going to have to answer to those. But he is, you know, a very, uh, you know, one would expect this of a man who has spent his career as a preacher. You know, he is very good at explaining things. And so I think his... Wealth of knowledge and having you know, spent two years in the Senate, he's just going to be kind of sitting there and soaking in all kinds of policy kind of concerns. And so, you know, if there's a debate and there will be or whatever, uh, you know, he is going to have a command at his fingertips of a whole range of issues he can talk about. And so I think it's going to be a very kind of dramatic comparison probably between his mastery of subject matter and, uh, again, this happens to any challenger of uh, trying to catch up with the incumbent who has that advantage of having just been living in that pool of, of information and a challenger isn't. So, you know, you suggested earlier, that maybe Herschel tried try to, to duck, you know, uh, mm-hmm. interviews and things like this, but sooner or later, you know, even if he's ducking, some voters are going to say, well, why don't we ever hear anything from, uh, from Herschel Walker about what he would do about the healthcare crisis or about, you know, more aid to education or, or whatever. So he's going to have to have, you know, a series of minimum series of talking points that he can go through.
1: All right. Certainly more to come. Dr. Bullock, we're going to let you have the last word there. Thank you so much for joining us for Political Breakfast and uh, promise you. to come back, don't you?
3: Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks Thank so you, Dr. Bullock.
1: All right. Thanks for having. Thank you, Dr. Yes, Bullock. Dr. Bu- Dr. Bullock holds the Richard B. Russell chair in political science. It was a pleasure having him as a guest today and having you. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again next week.
0: Thanks. And go dogs. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And
1: we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE.
2: On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians. And we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile.
1: We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig.
3: Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm.
1: W A B E.
3: (laughs)